Hey, Jay, so when exactly did Quicksilver and the Scarlet Witch join the Avengers? I know it was sometime after they were in the Brotherhood, right? Uh, that would have been Avengers number 16, Miles, um, so 1965. And Captain America just, what, showed up and said, You seem like good kids despite your villainous past. Climb aboard! No, no, see... All the other Avengers had quit, and Quicksilver and Scarlet Witch, who had recently abandoned their reluctant villainy in favor of a quiet life, saw a newspaper article about how Cap was recruiting. And decided to try their hands at the hero game. Precisely. They dressed up in their superhero costumes just in time to... Fly down and save the day? Write a formal letter expressing their interest. What?! I'm Jay Edidin. And I'm Miles Stokes. And we are here to explain the X-Men. Because it's about time someone did. Welcome to episode 222 of Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men, where we walk you through the ins, the outs, and the retcons of comics' greatest superhero soap opera. But before we do that today, we just kind of want to check in, in real life, outside of the 616, because it's been, um... A hell of a few weeks. It, as we're recording this, it's still the end of October. We hope by the time you listen to this that that you've all, or at least all of those, all of you who can have voted in the U.S. Um, and that we've gotten, you know, better news than, than we're sort of recording on right now. But in the meantime, we just kind of wanted to, you know, shout out to all the folks who are struggling out there, um, especially... Um, the the listeners who've been impacted by the legislation and by the events of this last week, and um, to all of our listeners in Brazil. Yeah, love to you all. It's a rough time, but you're awesome, and we can all be awesome together, and that's worth something. And as always, I think this is something that I think of as obvious, but that may not be to other folks. If you are ever in urgent need of help, or there's something that we can use our social networks or the show to signal boost to that effect please feel free to let us know and to reach out. Most definitely. All right. So um, on what I guess is a more upbeat note, today we are we, we will have an embarrassment of Betsy's Braddock. We will, and an embarrassment of confusion. So, Jay, we do a podcast, and it's called Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men, and we call ourselves experts. And yeah. this story and its eventual retcon, like, less than a year later— this is really up there. I mean, we can explain Summer's family trees left and right, but explaining Betsy Braddock after Fabian Nicieza failed to read Uncanny X-Men number 255 before writing a follow-up to what he assumed was in it? This is hard mode. This is definitely hard mode, and man, I love Nicieza, but he is, he is not making this one easy for us. Here's what I think we have to remember. Part of expertise, part of explanation in this context is explaining the ways in which some things fail to make coherent sense, even when you put together all of the retcons and piece together all of all of the separate pieces. The Summers family tree, for all of its convolution, is pretty much a finite thing. It exists in a fairly static form despite its time loops, and while it's ridiculously complicated, it's something that we can at least basically piece together. This is not so much one of those things. It's true. So we're left to pick up the pieces and just force those jigsaw puzzles into place and just pretend that those broken and peeling corners are totally fine. I gotta say, though, so I have some th some sympathy for Nicieza. He came into the X office at a really weird time. He had a great love of continuity, but he was following up on a continuity morass, the end of the Claremont era, the beginning of the image era pre-Exodus. That was rough. I'm honestly fine with most of the stuff he throws out the window. Um, I am on record as saying that I think continuity is fun, but should ultimately serve stories. And when Nicieza ignores what's come before or misinterprets it or misremembers it, it's generally going to be in surface of a story that he wants to tell. That being said, it does directly contradict what we already saw happen in Uncanny X-Men 255. And so you know who I blame? The government? Bob Harris, the editor who edited number 255 and this story and really should have caught that they don't make any sense together. Yeah, no, yeah, this is this definitely falls under not not exactly that you had one job, because I don't think there's any editor who just has one job or even only a few dozen. But this is definitely an editor's job 
to to catch. This is, however, at least timely, because this story concerns the apparent body swap between Betsy Braddock and the Asian assassin Quanon, and in recent continuity, we just saw Betsy go back to her original British body. So that's a bit of synchronicity. Uh, recent constant continuity, by the way, we mean in 2018, not um, recent to this particular issue. It's also worth noting that we describe Quanon's body as Asian, which is a general enough term to be kind of offensive to pull out because there's one of one of the things that's in perpetual conflict is her actual national origin. Exactly. Uh, there's talk of Japan, there's talk of China, Hong Kong comes up. And so, yeah, this is part of the early 90s fetishization, but also generalization of Asia, specifically of Asian women. Well, and there's there's yeah, there's there's a line from Why I Hate Saturn that I'm thinking of here that I don't know off the top of my head, but it's in a lot of ways kind of we've talked about Psylocke in this context before as being in in a lot of ways the avatar of that fetishization and of the kind of violent appropriation that tended to accompany it. Um, I will link back in the cold open here to the the first episode where we talked about this body swap specifically. That was with um with author Sarah Cohn as a guest. But there is a lot to unpack there. Speaking of a lot to unpack, I know we don't say it every time, but I feel like if any episode justifies it, it's this one. Can I say it, Jay? I, Miles, just follow your heart. Previously on X-Men. Uncanny X-Men mostly follows the exploits of the X-Men's gold team. And X-Men, which we're following today, um, sticks with the blue team, which consists of Cyclops, Wolverine, Psylocke, Gambit, Rogue, Beast, and most recently, Jubilee. They got done with Executioner's Song a little while ago, and that crossover left some fallout. First off, Cyclops found out that his infant son, who he sent to the future to save when the infant son got a techno-organic virus from Apocalypse, turned into a time-traveling jerk named Strife, or maybe a time-traveling less of a jerk named Cable. Both Strife and Cable, whichever of them was Nathan Christopher, died. At least apparently. And I think I, sh I should add, um, it becomes clear over the course of the arc we're looking at today that Cyclops is pretty sure that what he learned is that Strife is his kid. Which kind of contradicts the way he reacted to Cable's death, but eh, this happens. It was sort of like how sometimes he knew that Rachel Summers was his daughter and other times he didn't. Look, he leads an extremely emotionally confusing life, which he is incredibly poorly equipped to navigate. <laughs> well and concisely put. Thank you. Sinister, meanwhile, made a deal with Strife during that crossover to get a mysterious capsule. The capsule turned out to be empty, but since it was opened, lots of random mutants have been getting really sick, including Colossus's little sister, the recently de-aged Ilyana Rasputin. This mysterious illness, which will soon be introduced as the legacy virus, Marvel's answer to AIDS, is not related to the mysterious illness striking down the Warpies in the most recent arc of Excalibur that we covered. That's an unrelated thing, and it's magical. But speaking of Excalibur, let's talk about Betsy Braddock, a British lady, nay, who goes by Psylocke. She's Captain Britain's twin sister, and... oh boy... Initially, Betsy was a supermodel and a telepath. She had purple hair and a penchant for extremely princessy um, and also knighty outfits, which were great. Despite stereotypes going with princessy stuff, Betsy is a total badass with a heart of cold fucking steel. She even served briefly as Captain Britain, during which time she lost her eyes, which were later replaced with mechanical replicas by Mojo, who used those replicas to spy on the X-Men and create programming content. Psylocke's had a rough time. Betsy's time with the X-Men started a little bit after the Mutant Massacre, and she stayed with them until the end of the Outback era, where she led the remaining X-Men through the memory-erasing and life-resetting portal, the Siege Perilous. Psylocke emerged from the Siege Perilous with total retrograde amnesia. She watch, washed up on a Japanese shore and was retrieved by hand ninjas led by Matsuo Tsurayaba, who then teamed up with Iron Man villain the Mandarin to use science to transform her body from Caucasian to ambiguously Asian. That at least was the story as it was presented to us, and that will be, will be retconned away in the arc we're looking at today. On the upside for Betsy, she got some sweet ninja skills out of the deal, and she could now create a psychic knife, the focused totality of her psychic might. 
Wolverine helped Betsy free her mind from Matsuo, and she rejoined the X-Men and immediately started acting out. She's a lot colder and less attached to her teammates, and she started flirting really hard with Cyclops, who reacted poorly and kind of hilariously. Meanwhile, in the background of recent issues, a different purple-haired ninja assassin has been going around Japan beating people up and has now been sent by the crime lord Niorin to kill Psylocke. Which brings us to X-Men number 20, when a large amount of the information we just gave you will cease to apply. Yup. So, in Xavier's video cave, you know, the one where he watches lots of porn and then uh, doesn't shave for a long time, Xavier is reviewing the recent debacle in Russia. Well, I think that he's maybe enlarged the cave or at least put in a couch or some doors because Jubilee is hanging out there too, getting her rollerblades on. Um, and he's also got a Cerebro setup in there um, as well now. Jubilee also is very concerned that the professor not use the word rug. So that's a thing, I guess. I guess she was thinking about pubic hair. I don't know. We grew up in the early 90s, but I was little. I don't remember a lot of things. I guess I would have been around Jubilee's age, but still. Yeah, I had no friends, so... Well, there we go. We're both confused by Jubilee's hip teen lingo. Professor X, on the other hand, who is hip to the kids, lets Jubilee know that he wants to rap about feelings. Specifically, he'd like to know how she's doing after what happened to Colossus and Ilyana's parents. They were killed, and Jubilee's own parents, albeit a long time ago, had also died. As far as I can tell, life is nothing but losing. Just a matter of losing as little as possible while living as much as you can. Meanwhile, speaking of living as much as you can, Ilyana is still sick. She has been ever since she got back from Russia. Colossus insists he's not going to let anything happen to her, even though obviously he has no say over how, you know, the flu, or as it turns out, the legacy virus, work. Colossus is very clearly barely holding it together at this point. He has been through so much, just so, so continually. And at this point, he's about to lose his last living family member immediately after losing his parents, immediately after regaining and then re-losing his older brother. Professor X has some concerns. And you, Peter, who will care for you? How have you been holding up under all this stress? Your parents' deaths must... I am doing what I have always, what we have always done. I am surviving. I am... Carrying on. And I gotta say, this this issue, um, I need to look up who lettered it because I forgot to write it down in my notes because it's been that kind of a week. Um, but the lettering is great, and the letterer here specifically uses mixed case occasionally to extremely solid effect um, for emotional beats and shifts. Absolutely agreed. There's just, there's so much darkness going on around this era, and on the one hand, I don't like bad things happening to these characters I love so much. On the other hand, it's often been said that the X-Men are at their best when their backs are up against a wall, and that is especially the case emotionally. Some of the best stories have been when they've been dealing with some of the hardest shit. Right now, Jubilee's way of dealing with shit is mostly going out to find Wolverine. He is outside, and he is having complicated feelings about the thing that he and Peter discussed in Russia, just the fact that they, they lose and sacrifice so much as X-Men and see relatively little in the way of significant or substantial gain. Yeah, remember, Logan's former fiancée, Mariko Yoshida, she died in a recent issue of Wolverine, and he is understandably not over this yet. So as Jubilee is heading off in search of Wolverine, she runs into Psylocke, who is looking for someone else entirely. Psylocke is after Cyclops, and Cyclops is... She finds him um, in the, the aircraft hangar performing airplane repairs while standing at an angle that I'm fairly sure is physically impossible if you're not hanging onto something above you, which he is clearly not, which means that what happens subsequently is basically his own fault. Well, I mean, he can at least do it for a little while. I mean, look at all the muscles that Jim Lee gave him that current artists have totally kept. This guy is ripped. He used to be called Slim, but he is not Slim, unless you were to like cut him into thirds. Then each third would be both Slim and very gory. Well, that escalated oddly specifically. It's what we do. I mean, I guess if you're fighting Chatterstar on, on the regular, being cut into thirds is more of a concern than it might be for others. Right, right. We should put ourselves in the X-Men shoes. They seem comfortable. They've got, you know, big, big yellow boots or whatever. 
We do have some suitably dramatic narration with Cyclops, and remember, a conversation with Cyclops was one of the things that gave us the angry Claremontian narrator trope. Scott Summers, Cyclops, field leader of the X-Men. Cursed with optic blasts which prevent him from opening his eyes without protective ruby quartz glasses. But that doesn't mean Scott Summers is blind. Why then, for months now, has he been so unable to see the obvious? Okay, let's turn to history for an answer to that question. Alright, so we're talking about a dude who married a woman without realizing until someone else pointed it out, at which point they had been dating for a very long time, that she was physically identical to his dead fiancé, whom he spent the entire Silver Age persistently failing to ask out. So I feel like it's it's probably fair to assume that when it when it comes to the question of game, um, S- Scott Summers is not the brightest crayon in the Xbox. You probably shouldn't put crayons in your Xbox. I mean, those things used to red ring enough as it was. I mean, I, I feel like that level of dysfunction is a really appropriate metaphor for Cyclops' level of being able to handle flirtation. Ruby Quartz, Ring of Death. But that said, I have to give the guy some credit. I mean, yes, he missed the whole thing with Maddie, but at the same time, he was able to figure out who his dad was just by looking at himself in a lake while he was shaving. That's not true. He'd seen Corsair's dog tags like he knew that the guy had the same name as his father. Don't rain on my shaving Savage Land lake parade. Anyway, Psylocke comes up and um, sexies at at Cyclops so hard that he falls over backwards, which again is pretty much his fault because why is he standing like that? Like that, that's, that's not a safe position in which to be performing repairs on, on your airplane. But anyway, um, Psylocke's response to this is to lick what is either blood or like airplane fluids off his face. And I've thought about this and I still can't decide which one of those options is less okay. Like neither of them is okay at all, but I feel like one's got to somehow be worse, but they're both so weird and bad. I'm going to go ahead and say that what I always assumed to be motor oil is probably worse. Like, at least with the blood, you have the biological connection. Like, I can see it. It's not my personal thing, but I can see it. But motor oil? Like, that's got to be incredibly bad for you. I mean, I don't know. Maybe it's fine. Maybe you could just use it while you're frying up omelets in place of, like, canola oil or olive oil. But still, I feel like you shouldn't do that. And it's probably not even pure oil. It's probably like, you know, the used oil, like he's doing an oil change on the Blackbird. And this is the, the sludgy oil that he's taking out of the old filter. And not what's on his face. And Psylocke is licking his face. And this is not sexy. Any more than that time, he still had morning breath and had to pee and found her in the shower. What I was just going to say was that I, I want to make a who wore it better joke using the panel from much later when Wolverine lost his nose and tried to lick Scott's face to wake him up one time. <laughs> as long as we're discussing people licking Scott's face, we're on the right track. The fact that it happens more than once within a decade is weird, right? Like, that's that's not something I think of as a standby in superhero comics. Well, apparently it is now. But anyway, Scott's pretty weirded out by this, at which point Betsy kisses him, like, all passionately-like. Um, Cyclops pushes her away and panics, and Jean shows up at this point and asks him if he's okay, which leads to a moment that I'm pretty sure is actually absolute peak Scott Summers. Quote Cyclops? I'm fine. Everyone's fine. I can't stay. The Scott Summers story. No, no. What makes it even better is that then he flees to Alaska to get out of an awkward conversation. Scott doesn't half-ass these things. I relate so hard to this absolute train wreck of a man. (laughs) Um, so this leaves a confused Jean trying to figure out what hap- what just happened and what Psylocke's doing. And um, honestly, the way the following couple pages are staged, it sort of what it looks like Psylocke was doing was was get out of get Scott out of the way so that she could then lurk at Jean. Uh, I don't think that is um, textual at the very least. The thing is, it would make more sense and like make more tactical sense for a telepath who had who knew anything about their teammates than her actual goals did? I suppose that's true. But no, Betsy's being like real mean girl at Jean over this whole thing. She knows exactly how it looks and she's fine with this. And Jean is really upset. I mean, she's worrying about the state of her and Scott's relationship, talking about how many things have changed and did they ever really know each other to begin with and they've been through so much. And 
these concerns that are starting here, or at least that are becoming more in the forefront here, these are going to continue being there until they eventually split up in a decade or so after this. Yeah, these are these are concerns that are going to define and be the counterbeat to a lot of their relationship. I gotta say, though, I don't really buy the Scott-Betsy thing. That relationship never made any sense to me. But the way Jean's almost despair here, the way her anxiety and her panic and her sorrow are coming through, like, this I buy. These things are earned, and Nestez's purple prose really sells the whole thing. I think the way he does dialogue is suited to these type of emotions. Yeah, I'm inclined to agree. Um, I gotta say, as far as the Scott-Betsy thing, I sort of buy her end of it. Not because I think that she'd actually be all about hitting that, so much as that I think that, you know, she she and Jean are going to get into a, a fight about this later on, um, this issue. And Betsy's going to talk about how basically she's decided to base, to frame her life around not being a victim and to look at everything as basically a battle in a contest and try to come out on top. And she's doing this as a way to eat as as a way to grasp at something in that way you know to assert status or to push someone else out before she gets pushed out in a different way what bugs me though is that there's a point that we'll get to momentarily where jean's like why are you doing this and betsy says i'll show you and like telepathically whammies her and uh we the readers never find out and it never really comes up again as far as i know so it's like nasiesa had something here and it just kind of was dropped on the cutting room floor yeah, all we get is, is a brief caption telling us that Jean knows what all of Betsy's feelings are now, but we do not get to be privy to them. And Jean ends up forgetting them because telepathy, so uh, she doesn't either. Meanwhile, Storm, after checking on Rogue's continuing post-executioner's song Eyeball Recovery, finds Scott leaving. Yeah, and she is concerned because she she sees him as basically doing what she did when she fled Forge. I do not want you to build the same fortress of solitude I have. It saves us from being hurt, Scott, but it also prevents us from feeling joy. I appreciate it, Aurora. I do. But when it comes to building walls, I've been doing it longer and better than anyone I know. Aw, Scott. God, just let him have a few days off, you guys. Meanwhile, all the X-Men, and also the mansion computers that people keep coincidentally telling to shut up because they're busy, have been having weird little quasi-encounters that seem like maybe they're with Psylocke. It almost seems like she's been in multiple places at once. And that some of those places are places it shouldn't be possible for her to be, or where they're not expecting to see her. Now, what's actually happening becomes clear after Jean and Betsy have the confrontation we talked about in the danger room, which ends with Betsy, with Psylocke, um, psychic knifing Jean in the neck. And that's interrupted by the original Betsy Braddock, who shows up and attacks Psylocke, claiming that she's the real Betsy Braddock and the one who's been on the team so far is an imposter. To which all of the X-Men gather and in unison say, What?! That takes us to X-Men number 21, The Puzzle Box. So, Jay, you wrote in your notes, and I agree, that maybe we should have a way to disambiguate these two Betsies. Now, traditionally, Caucasian lavender-armored Betsy is referred to as Revanche, and the Betsy we've been hanging out with for the last while is referred to as simply Psylocke. But right now, it's really ambiguous. Well, that works for me, because while they both think they're Betsy, they are still using those respective codenames. So... I think we should basically what 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 we, we can put out there right now is that both both women think that they are the original and the real Betsy Braddock, and so calling one of them Betsy and the other something else seems uncool right now. So yeah, they're just going to be Psylocke and Ravash for now. And Psylocke is is Bet is is the woman running around in Betsy Body 1.0. No, she's not. And Psylocke is the woman running around in Betsy Body 2.0. Ravash is the one running around in the original Betsy Body. Right, Ravash Caucasian. Psylocke, Asian. Generically, ambiguously, uncomfortably, Asian. So, after this big reveal, Logan is doing the whole outside claws around the neck thing, is he gonna pop the middle claw, to Psylocke, but Psylocke insists, no, she's exactly who she said she was. She's Betsy, her body has been altered, they've all been hanging out for, like, a couple of years at this point, or in in in-universe time, maybe a few months, something like that, so what the hell? 
You'd think this is something that could be easily solved in a house full of telepaths, but because Betsy is herself a powerful telepath, as are you know, both Revanche and Psylocke, Professor Xavier and Jean can't really get below the surfaces of their minds without their permission. And while Revanche says go ahead, um, Psylocke is less okay with it. She has been manipulated. She has had her mind rewritten a few times. She doesn't want anyone else mucking around in there. Exactly. So Logan takes Xavier aside. He says that their scents are kind of the same and they're kind of different from pre-Siege Perilous Betsy Braddock before all of this confusion started. And also he totally saw this new but original bodied Betsy using ninja techniques and original bodied Betsy never knew any ninja stuff. So what's up with that? They decide that the only thing to do at this point is to head to Japan and try to figure out what actually happened and what the hell is going on here. So they go to find Lord Niorin, who Revanche has said is responsible for all of these shenanigans. Speaking of Japan, let's take a brief detour to Tokyo, where everybody's favorite doesn't know what sex is but pretends he does upstart Shinobi Shaw, clad only in a tiny towel, like tinier than the one Psylocke was wearing in that awkward shower sequence in Russia, and as usual, surrounded by sexy people, calls in the aforementioned Lord Neoiren. Neoiren still looks like the Mandarin. Totally different dudes, though. The Mandarin's not in this story at all, but I really wish this new character had been made to look just like an old character who was also involved with a story that's related to this one. Yeah, that's always an awkward, awkward choice. So, Nyoran is really annoyed to have been called in because he really feels like any business that Shinobi had with him could have waited until tomorrow when the, the you know, organized crime babysitters club is having their, their periodic meeting. Shinobi replies that, well, maybe the two of them can work together to take out Psylocke. Well, and the X-Men, because Shinobi doesn't care about Psylocke, but he wants the X-Men gone. Nyoran wants Psylocke back under his control, and Nyoran also wants to take over the Yashida family. He wants the family reinstated in the, the, the organized crime circles of, of Tokyo, and he wants to be in charge. Later, Shinobi gets another visitor at his home. This is Matsuo Tsuriyaba. You know, the jerk businessman guy that kind of has Wolverine hair and kind of doesn't and works for the hand and was responsible for the whole confusion with Betsy last time around. But he's different from the other guy who works with um, crime lords in Madripoor and also has Wolverine hair. That, that's a totally different dude. That guy's a way more minor dude. He only showed up briefly and had a weird foghorn leghorn accent. But Matsuo, even though he's not an upstart, has apparently gotten permission from Games Master, the head of the upstarts, to continue his own murder plans for Psylocke. Shinobi's really pissed, but he gets over it. I mean, Games Master does run the whole show, so okay. I love Games Master. Like, he has become one of my favorite characters because as far as I can tell, he is this random like space robot dude who a bunch of rich assholes came up to and said, hey, would you mind officiating our rich asshole murder games? And he was like, okay, and then just proceeded to fuck with them nonstop. It's pretty great. One thing that is less great is the fact that in this scene, Matsuo and Shinobi, as drawn by fill-in artist Brandon Peterson, look fucking identical. They're both vaguely Japanese-looking dudes with basically the same giant flowy hair and the same build and the same suits and the same facial expressions. Matsuo's got a little scar over one eye, and that's like the only way you can distinguish them. This issue right here is heavily responsible by for why I so often got them confused when I was younger. Um, actually, their coats are different colors. Okay, that, I'm just not gonna count that. No, it's ridiculous. It's, it's, <laughs> they're not, they're not well distinguished. I'm, I'm just being a dick. Well, Shinobi's big day, or big series of days, it's ambiguous, continues as he uses his mutant power to phase his way into a fancy restaurant to meet the other crime lords. This is the big meeting that Nyoiren was talking about earlier. Nyoiren's there, so is Matsuo, and so's fucking Tatsuo. You remember Tatsuo, Opal Tanaka's jerk granddad, who was supposed to be dead poisoned by his own daughter because he was such a jerk? Yeah, apparently he's fine, and he's here, and I hate him. I am 90% sure someone forgot he was supposed to be dead, and he got drawn in and then rationalized out. But man, yeah, like, couldn't she have had that one victory? For serious. Well, anyway, Shinobi's a little shit, and Tatsuo beats him up, and everybody makes up, and that's that. 
But let's check back in with the X-Men, because Beast, Gambit, Betsy, and Betsy are sneaking into Nyaren's estate. Wolverine didn't come along because, you know, his former fiancé just died in the vague vicinity of this place, so uh, he's going to go to the Savage Land in his own series instead right now. He's having some feelings. Fair enough. Now... The new Betsy, that is Revanche in Betsy's original body, she's wearing a version of her eggplant-colored assassin gear from the last time we saw her, but now the part that was just skin and implied that this thing would just fall right off her if she even turned her head, now it's pink spandex, so it's like a two-tone kind of deal, and I like this way better. It reminds me a lot of her old look from back when she had that kick-ass, uh, confusingly forged armor in the Outback era. Like, it really does add credence to the, holy shit, is this really Psylocke? Is this really Betsy? Yeah, I was going to say, I wonder if she's specifically decided to deliberately play that up to cement those associations, because while she firmly believes that she's the real Betsy, she's definitely going to do everything she can to try to reinforce that idea in the minds of the other X-Men. At this point, everybody's calling her Revanche, which is weird because she never really took on that name, and if she's trying to say, no, she's Silas, you'd think she would be using that name. Maybe this was a weird editorial thing, I don't know, but here she is as Revanche, which is kind of weird. Because at this point, uh, she's going by a French word, despite having her body swapped into that of an Asian woman and being initially British. I mean, it's sort of a melting well, pot character concept. She's also the, the region that Quanin is from, if you enlarge it enough, includes um, countries that, that dealt with a fair lot of, of French colonialism. Oh, that, that's actually a really good point. I rescind my criticism. I mean, it's still weird, but there is context. I rescind a portion of my criticism. So Gambit's being his awesome, charming, early 90s self, you know, the character that so many kids were into as he, sneaking in, says, Two guards, two guards, two down. This is too easy. But, unfortunately, there are more ninjas waiting for them inside, and, and the ninjas and company... Um, sort of gently herd them very subtly to Nyoran's study, where our team sees a portrait of Psylocke, um, the Psylocke body, dressed differently, uh, labeled in Japanese um, as what, what Beast translates as Kwanin in Repose. I checked the translation, and apparently that's very close to what it actually is. It's probably, it's slightly closer to something like the rest of Kwanin or the Repose of Kwanin, but... Well done, translators. So it seems like this is a slam dunk. It seems like the newcomer, original British-bodied Betsy, is correct that the Betsy we've been seeing, the ninja assassin one who goes by Psylocke, is some kind of an imposter, is some kind of a plant, is some kind of a traitor. But before that can be resolved, there's another interloper. Silver Samurai shows up to attack Beast from behind, and everybody fights. And that takes us to number 22, the mask behind the facade. It turns out Silver Samurai is attacking because Nyorin promised Silver Samurai control of Clan Yoshida. It all kind of comes together. So as usual, Silver Samurai is doing the wrong thing for the, okay, well, still mostly wrong reason, but eh, what can you do? For a dubious reason. Yes. Also, his power remains very specific. Like, he can just charge a katana? That's weird. Anyway, he's quickly taken down because Psylocke and Revanche do a Chrono Trigger-style psychic X-Strike. The good guys win! Hooray! And I actually really like the way they're drawn here. Like, they're in identical fighting stances every time they're in the same panel together, and that's a really good touch. Yeah, one of the things that they're starting to realize, and that the team is starting to realize, that it's is that it's not that these are two different minds and two different bodies, that obviously there's significant overlap, and that's most evident in, in their fighting. Exactly. What's very convenient about this fight is that Silver Samurai threw a dagger at one point, and it just happened to land in the portrait of Quanan, this woman who looks so much like the Psylocke we've known for the last couple of years. Um, and behind the portrait, exactly where the knife hit, is a conveniently placed diary scroll. It's Niorin's diary. Like, did he hide it there from his mom, who he talks about how she's nosy, but really she just cleans his room all the time because he won't? Yes. Yes, that is definitely and 100% what happened. It's probably mostly about how excited he was to grow the first hairs of what turned into a pretty epic mustache. I know I was excited when I was young. It's, it's just a detailed list of all of the hair products he's tried to get his hair to do the Wolverine thing. Oh, wait, no, that's, that's Sierra Alba. Damn it. 
Revanche apparently believes in a very interactive version of story time, so as they all look at the scroll, Revanche psychic cutlasses Psylocke right through the midsection, and Revanche narrates both from the diary and from her own memory. What's the short version? The short version is that Quanon, who looked like the Betsy currently in the Psylocke body, um, was an assassin working for Nuren. Um, however, she disappeared on a mission, apparently immediately after saving Betsy, who was just then washing up on shore post-Siege Perilous. Betsy's mind at that point was screwed up by the Siege Perilous, and her telepathy wasn't in control. When she was when Quanon reached out to her and touched her, Betsy's mind basically jumped into Quanon's, um, shook them both up a little bit, and then redistributed the parts. Um, so they are they are basically both telepathic mix and matches of Quanon and Elizabeth Braddock. So there we go. Apparently, the the Betsy and Quanon mines in Quanon's body ran off and were found by Matsuo, who used the hand and his buddy the Mandarin to sort of fix her up and turn her into an assassin for them. The mines that were in Elizabeth Braddock's body were found by Nyoiren, who helped rehabilitate her because, it turns out, Quanon was his lover as well as his assassin, and he figured, maybe this is the closest I'm going to get. That seems not fully consensual. So that's something else that makes the earlier revelation weird. There's a point earlier on where all of the X-Men take as proof that something is fishy, that the Betsy, that that Psylocke-bodied Betsy doesn't read Japanese, but Revanche-bodied Betsy does, which is bizarre because most of the X-Men are polyglots. Telepaths pick up languages super fast. And also, this Betsy has been living in Japan for months. Yeah, it's, it's a little weird. What's also weird is that way back in Uncanny X-Men number 255, you know, the first time this story happened about what happened to Betsy when she washed up from the Siege Perilous, back then, Matsuo definitely found British Betsy, not the Quanon-bodied Betsy. This is a direct contradiction. This diary is all lies, apparently. That's actually what Nisiez's future retcon will confirm, but for now, this is the official story, even though it doesn't make sense based on what we saw years ago. So is, is this like his, his dream book, or, or what, what, what are we reading? Eh, who knows? We'll get to that in a future episode in shocking depth. Now, Revanche says that Psylocke is still a hand assassin and is totally going to betray the X-Men, at which point... Gambit and Revanche beat the hell out of Psylocke until Neoiren and Silver Samurai show up to gloat. The X-Men are really quick to turn on each other, man. I think Gambit's just a real asshole right around now. Accurate. Yeah, I feel like he's, he's got a limited supply of human decency and he's pretty much saving it all for Rogue at the moment. Well, that brings us to X-Men number 23, leaning towards oneself. And we open with a standoff. Yeah, we've got uh, Psylocke, Silver Samurai, Revanche, and Nyoren all holding various weapons, physic and, physical and psychic, at one another. Um, and the the Betsy's have a significant upper hand, and so they're able to get Nyoren to explain a bit of what's going on and to confirm that, yes, the two Betsy's, who are also the two Quanins, are kind of a psychic mix-up right now. Nyoiren, partially to save himself, presumably, tells the X-Men about Matsuo and Shinobi Shaw, both of whom are definitely involved in this whole mess. So, who would probably be better to go fight? Which the X-Men do. Um, Gambit and Beast burst through the window of his fancy, sexy bat. You should say who's, because we talked about two yes. people. Gambit and Beast burst through the window of, of Shinobi's fancy, sexy, multi-person bathtub, which is shaped more like you'd expect one to be rather than the very, very long X-Force bathtub. Although I feel like Shinobi Shaw would totally get one of those bathtubs, figuring it was probably good for, you know, the sex. You do the sex and things like that, right? In positions. Yes, and this allows for a number of different different alignments. For example, you can line up three people head to feet. Exactly. There's nothing as sexy as that. So Gambit threatens Shinobi's crotch and says the X-Men now know about the upstarts, and those upstarts had better watch out, man. Or else. Psylocke and Revanche head together to Matsuo's home. There's a great big ninja fight, and the ladies, the Betsies, the Quanans, whatever, win. 
So Matsuo, uh, in sort of acknowledging this win, gives them a bit of story time. He says that he molded Psylocke the same way Nyarin molded Revanche. They each got one of these people, and they each molded them the way they wanted to. But he wonders, hey, now that the two of them are greater than the sum of their parts, I mean, don't they secretly just freaking love that? Psylocke has a scary answer. Perhaps we do, Matsuo. Allow us to show you just how much. And we zoom out to screams! I suspect Matsuo's crotch is in even worse shape than Shinobi's. But, like, symmetrically mangled. Uh, yes. So, that's this story. Where we leave off is that Quanan and Betsy Braddock have had their minds and their skills and their powers scrambled between both of their bodies. We now have Psylocke in Quanan's body, and Revanche in Betsy's original body, both hanging out with the X-Men. Yeah, we'll get final, vaguely final answers about this stuff in about ten issues, but for now, uh, that's what we've got. But before we move on to our Scott Summers B-plot, let's talk a little about Wolverine. Remember how we said he didn't want to go to Japan because there were too many bad memories, and instead he headed off to the Savage Land? Why was he there? So, in Wolverine 69-71, Wolverine, Rogue, and Jubilee went to the Savage Land to look for evidence of Magneto after they'd found his discarded carapace in France. Right, they figured he'd be, you know, flying around like a beautiful magnetic butterfly or something. They didn't find Magneto, alive or otherwise, but they did find the mutate brainchild who used to work for Magneto in the Savage Land ages ago, super out of it and mumbling terrified about some man ripping iron from the Earth. So... That's a little bit more evidence. We had Magneto's armor still mostly intact in the crash asteroid M. We had Magneto's helmet in a weird shrine the Acolytes had. And now we have somebody who appears to have seen Magneto very recently. Maybe this guy's alive after all. But either way, we're going to shelve that guy as we look at the B-plot, um, which which starts in a couple different places and most most obviously starts when, when Scott runs off to Alaska to, to avoid talking about feelings, but also in Seattle, where Mesmero, who we most recently saw at least somewhat reformed in Excalibur, is attacked and killed by the Dark Riders. Yeah, they're doing this whole thing where they're testing mutants to see if they're worthy of the upcoming conflict, and uh, apparently he isn't. Apparently, neither is Synapse, one of the Dark Riders, who's had a little cold ever since the whole conflict on the Moon and Executioner's song. The combination of sniffles and a battle strategy mistake are apparently enough to get Synapse thrown out of the running for whatever the weird future the Dark Riders are shooting for is, and they just kill him. Yeah, I think the Dark Riders may be bad people, Jay. Yes, Miles. The Dark Riders are definitely bad guys. Glad to have that confirmed. Well, Scott Summers has indeed headed to Alaska specifically to go meet Grandpa Philip and Grandma Deborah. You remember the grandparents he didn't really remember until Corsair introduced them all or reintroduced them all? These were also the grandparents who had employed Madeline Pryor um, and in whose in whose employment um, Scott first met her. And we're going to periodically over the years, a lot of times, see Scott or Alex just kind of losing it with an X-team and running off to Alaska to recoup at this point now that they actually have family there. Now, they apparently already know that Madeline and Nathan Christopher died. They've heard that much, but Scott's going to tell them a little more. How they lived, how they died, and how they lived again. This week on Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men... But yeah, Scott explains to them the whole shebang. And they're really upset, especially Philip. Um, you know, he talks about how I, I or, or no, Deborah talks about how, yeah, I know you and your father live, live different types of lives. But I, I guess while they're entirely fine with space piracy and sexy skunk girlfriends, time travel is just the absolute damn limit. Well, especially when it leads to your great grandkid dying or being sent to the future and disappearing or being sent to the future and disappearing and then coming back and dying, apparently. Look, he, f he clearly got a few good years in. As Scott is attempting to get into the whole mess that is strife and cable, there's a knock on the door and a neighbor stops by with to get some help or at least some equipment to help chop down a tree that fell. This is a guy named Mike Milbury. And you may remember that name if you were paying attention 
during the episodes when we've talked about Scott's backstory, that Scott specifically grew up in an orphanage run by Mr. Sinister, who was using the pseudonym Milbury at the time. Yup. Milbury's also the name of the manor in which uh, Mr. Sinister, back when he was human, and his wife lived in before everything went to hell. But anyway, in case you didn't catch those, we have Mike Milbury saying hi to Scott and saying that he remembers him from when Scott was real little and pulling up his baseball cap to reveal, yep, a red diamond on his forehead. Well, and and red eyes and everything. Um, Scott doesn't seem to see anything wrong here. He, he goes out to try to help Mr. Milbury, who mentioned that he, he needs to, to, to break up a, a tree that got destroyed in a storm. Um, and... So um, when Scott heads out to find him, he finds instead, of course, Glam Sinister. And the only tree that Sinister cares about is Cyclops' family tree. Bloodlines and breeding. Evolution and heirs. The very stuff of life, Scott. We've said it before in regard to Sinister, I'll say it again. You do what you love, you never work a day in your life. Do you think he set up the entire tree scenario as Mike Milbury just so he could use the the only tree I care about is your family tree line? I am 100% confident that that's the case. Cyclops doesn't care about Milbury being clever, though. He just unleashes optic blast hell on this dude. And remember the last time he did that, Sinister fucking disintegrated at the end of Inferno, exploding into a pile of, like, bones and stuff. And that was literally the last time Scott saw him. So this is, this is somewhat shocking to him. Um... Man, I really like the way Qbert draws this. Yeah, me too. It's kind of like when Bishop shot Sinister a while back during Executioner's Song. Sinister's body deforms like Terminator-esque liquid metal around the blast, but his grin is still firmly in place. He is just loving the look on Scott's face when Scott realizes that what seems to work before is not even remotely going to work again. Okay, this is weird, and it's weird that no one mentioned to Scott that Sinister was alive post-Executioner's Song. Like, I know Scott was unconscious for the entire time Sinister had him in Jean, but you'd think someone would bring this up. It's kind of a big deal, right? Yeah. Well, apparently what happened is that at the, at the end of Inferno, when Scott seemed to disintegrate Sinister, it turned out that was just a ruse by Sinister who didn't want to, like, continue the conversation, kind of like when Scott left a conversation by going to Alaska. Yeah, I love I love the fact that at this point, like all of the the adult mastermind figures in in the X universe get out of awkward situations by faking their deaths. <laughs> Pretty much that. Uh, and so they have a conversation. And I fucking love the way that Andy Hubert draws Mr. Sinister, like you were just saying. Specifically, I love the way Hubert draws Sinister's sort of ribbon cape as these almost gigantic spider leg looking talon things just coming out and taking up way too much space. It's kind of like the way Spawn was drawn, except I like Mr. Sinister way better than Spawn. Yeah, I think one of the things about Mr. Sinister's cape is that it works best when the person who's drawing it isn't even trying to make it obey any normal laws of costuming or clothing, when it's there as much as atmosphere as, as apparel. So Mr. Sinister explains to Cyclops, back in Executioner's Song, Sinister thought he was trading Scott and Jean to Strife for some future summer's genetic material. Maybe Strife's, maybe Cable's. Sinister doesn't really confirm where, one way or the other. But apparently, what Sinister got was actually a virus that seems to have been unleashed on the world. Well, shit. And he has specifically lured Scott over so that he can warn him about this, which is a little surprising. Sinister explains. Because I care, Scott. Selfishly, I'll grant you, for the fruitful pursuit of my own self-interests. But I care enough to wish you and your brothers to be protected from this illness. Brothers? Excuse me? You said brothers. Plural. I'm sorry, did I? I met your brother, Alex. And here we fucking go. The third Summer's Brother mystery has officially begun. We are off to the races, my friends, and I could not be happier. That's such a good tease. And we've talked before about ways that we wish this had resolved. And my, my ideal for this was always that Sinister was just fucking with him. Right, that it turned out Adam X and Gambit and Vulcan, like, nobody had anything to do with it. Sinister was just being a jerk and aping Yoda with the whole, there is another thing. 
No, that he was just, or, or that he said it as a slip, or that he he meant, you know, mutant kind, or he meant family in general, or yeah, he's got a bunch of clones of Scott, like, in his refrigerator for a rainy day, but, you know, that's not necessarily directly relevant. Or that there is a third Summers brother, but Sinister doesn't know about him. Well, regardless, the Dark Riders at this point take this opportunity to suddenly attack to see if Scott Summers and apparently Mr. Sinister are going to be worthy of the coming whatever. And, um, the Dark Riders are really badly outmatched. Yeah, because it's fucking Cyclops and fucking Mr. Sinister. These guys kick the Dark Riders' asses hard, and they're actually so impressed they offer membership to Mr. Sinister, who basically says, Not on my worst day. Now, Sinister insists, hey, Scott is not to be killed by them. This is not how or where or by whose hands Scott Summer dies. But if the Dark Riders want to rough Cyclops up a bit, Sinister doesn't really give a shit about that, and Sinister pieces out. So, they briefly try to fight him, but his glasses get knocked off, and um, he blasts the hell out of everyone, and... A big voice comes down to tell them that it's okay, the test is over, Cyclops has passed, and he can, you know, he can be one of one of the worthy and chosen. And that means that when the upcoming battle for the ascension of the High Lord, oh, Nicieza, I like most of your plot lines, but I hate the externals, comes, Cyclops is officially in a place where he'll be ready for it, and he'll be on the front lines in this coming conflict. Nope, it's never actually gonna happen. Scott doesn't give a shit about this, and he probably shouldn't, but he does ask, okay, it's you guys' fault that I had to send my infected kid into the future and that the whole Strife Cable conflict happened. Like, what the hell? Did you know that was going to happen when you did it? And either way, explain yourselves, assholes. The writers say that, yeah, they totally knew that was going to happen. I assume they're lying. Yeah, and that they say it's a conversation for another time, and they leave. And Scott, having had a very bad day, after having had a previous very bad day, just sort of sits there, and we get some very Scott Summers narration. The Dark Riders teleport away, and Scott, too helpless and too numb to stop them, merely watches. He would cry out in rage or cry with grief, but the pain slides over him like an old, comfortable blanket. And he thinks of what he has learned this day, about his enemies, about himself. The pain and sadness wash over him, warming him like a soothing balm. He's come to embrace them both, to depend on them, to need them. And as he's done for far too long, Scott Summers turns towards himself for support. But he's tired, and maybe, just maybe, the time has come to ask others to help. Yes, Scott, you have a safety net just waiting for you. You have a supportive group of family and friends who would love to help. Please do this. Get Scott Summers a competent therapist, 2K18. Seriously. So that's this story. We have some confusion about Psylocke and Revanche and Betsy Braddock and Quanon. We have Scott being very sad and Mr. Sinister being Mr. Sinister. And we have listeners, and they've got questions. Beowulf Jones asks via email, In episode 138, you both discuss your love of Twin Peaks, including non-Lynch plots of season 2. Did you watch the 18-episode Twin Peaks The Return, and if so, what did you think? Uh, I did. Uh, Jay, did you watch it? I did not. Okay, well, for your benefit and the benefit of listeners, I'm going to keep this as spoiler-free as possible. So, I actually really liked season 3. But I think I liked it in large part because I like the David Lynch weird non-Twin Peaks stuff that I've seen. If I was just a Twin Peaks fan, I don't think it would have worked nearly as well. But for me, season three was almost more reminiscent of Mulholland Drive than of previous Twin Peaks. And that really worked for me. I feel like it's almost like Lynch saw season one and two of Twin Peaks and he forgot that he was actually the one that made most of that. And so he decided to take those first two seasons and, you know... David Lynch them up a little. So it's kind of like David Lynch squared in terms of weirdness and darkness. I like to pretend that The Good Place is actually Twin Peaks Season 3. Now there's one I haven't seen and need to. You really, really do. But with Twin Peaks, Season 3 almost seems like a reaction to the whole, like, coffee and pie, homey, folksy perception of Season 1 and 2. 
like, I don't know, maybe Lynch wanted to remind people that the darkness under the normalcy was so much of what he was trying to get across in, in season one and two. Whether or not he overshot and got too weird and dark, I, I don't know. Season three is like very, definitely challenging to watch, but but I also think rewarding. Um, I also really loved the way it ended, and I will not say anything more about that. An anonymous listener asks on Tumblr, I was wondering if you could explain more about Betsy Braddock. Her story and the body switch thing has always been confusing to me. Fair enough. Why does she have telekinesis if she originally was only telepathic? Is the psychic blade originally Quanon's power set? Can she see Quanon's memories since she remembered her martial arts training? Has there ever been a comic book storyline dealing with the problematic cultural appropriation that's kind of there with the body switch? I know that's a lot. Sorry. Okay. It's a lot, but you're not the one who needs to apologize here, um, anonymous listener. I, I feel like that's firmly in Marvel's court. So, first of all, telekinesis has nothing to do with any of the body swapping. Instead, Psylocke got her telekinesis from Jean Grey. So basically, Betsy at one point sacrificed her telepathy to contain the Shadow King. Um, this would have been around 2000. And Jean tried to help Betsy get it back, but accidentally gave Betsy all of her telekinesis, and Jean ended up with all of the telepathy. And then everyone forgot that, and Jean just got more telekinesis later. Well, I know part of it, for Betsy at least, was that a resurrected Madeline Pryor going by the Red Queen briefly and temporarily put Betsy back into a clone of Betsy's original British body, and somehow that brought Betsy's telepathy back too. So these days in X-Men, Betsy has both telepathy and telekinesis. So when she creates those pink glowy weapons, they're usually telekinetic constructs, although she can still do her psychic knife also. It's the best of both worlds. I mean, for a very specific value of best. As far as the whole mutant power being in both Revanche and Psylocke's bodies, the fact that they can both do psychic knives slash psychic cutlasses slash whatever, I don't know. I mean, their minds got distributed between two bodies. Maybe their mutant powers were part of that, even though they should just be with the genetics. That'll make a little more sense later when this is a re-retcons this. But I don't know. I think it's just cool. Um, now, Regarding Quanin's memories, as far as I know, Betsy doesn't have any kind of direct access to that. She occasionally gets flashes, and she's obviously got stuff like the martial arts training. As far as the cultural appropriation thing, I don't know that it's ever actually been directly addressed, but occasionally stories will mention it briefly, and sometimes in really cool ways. I do remember uh, Uncanny X-Force having had some interesting stuff to say about that, albeit still not very much. I kind of feel like Marvel is currently... Um in a position where they specifically have a lot of reasons to avoid acknowledging appropriation of Asian identities. That is a very valid point. And um, listeners, if you're wondering what we're talking about, uh, go ahead and Google Akira Yoshida. Wait, was yeah. it Akira Yoshida? It was Akira Yoshida, and I will link to that also um, in the, the visual companion. But yeah, I, I do not have a lot of hope of, of seeing the more problematic aspect of that body swap addressed Um during this particular tenure. Mainly, they seem to sweep it under the rug by having Betsy just get her original body back in one of the Hunt for Wolverine miniseries. Wow, so so that ended on, on a kind of, kind of depressing note. Um, on a less depressing note, we are an entirely listener-supported podcast, and it's because of you folks that we're able to do this, that we're able to stay on the air, and that we're able to keep all of Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men totally ad-free. Some of those tiers of support come with acknowledgement on the podcast from a range of fictional characters and concepts. So let's start by hearing from the angry Claremontian narrator. Ah, Sean Ashley. You want to sink into despair, to let misery close around you like a warm, if slightly damp, blanket, fresh from an insufficient length of time in the dryer, starting to turn cold and already losing the last of the bit of remaining heat clinging to it and reminding you that there was a better option. You almost want to, but you know that somewhere out there, Theodore Stack Gross is waiting for you. And that when you find them, you may finally receive the closure you've hunted for for so long, that you've both hunted for for so long, only to have it pulled back away 10 issues later. And with those dire fates aside, I believe I am I am somewhat gingerly handing handing the mic to uh, sexy Shinobi Shaw. 
Yes, that's right, Revanche. I mean, Quanan. I mean, you purple-clad ninja minx. Kill those X-Men using your sexy sex powers. For if you do, I, Shinobi Shaw, master of doing it, will receive the newly altered prize of the Upstarts contest. That's right. Mike Sagawa and Stefan Johansson will finally tell me what sex is. I already knew, of course. I know far more than Mike or Stefan about making sex with ladies and men. I'm just testing them to make sure they know. And with that... Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men is recorded in Forest Hills, New York and Portland, Oregon and produced by the very, very patient Matt Hunter. New episodes come out every Sunday on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and at explainthexmen.com. Check out explainthexmen.com for all kinds of extra content, including visual companions to every episode. Our show is 100% listener-supported. If you'd like to help us stay on the air and ad-free, check out the Patreon link at the top of explainthexmen.com. Next week, we'll be recording live from the Vegas Valley Comic Book Festival. With a very Dracula annual. (laughs) 